Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. This is Tavis Killian with the Rare Petro Media team bringing you another episode of Monday Madness on May 17th, 2021. It's been a halfway sunny, halfway rainy weekend of graduation ceremonies, and I even attended my own. Well, I signed up too late, so I watched the postponed class of 2020 graduation from the stands as a few of my fellow classmates walked the stage. I was talking to a friend of the 2021 class, and they mentioned that they were now really worried about the future. Honestly, this is something we've all been worried about, whether you graduate, lose your job, move cities, or anything really. Big changes are initially challenging, but if we take it day by day, I'm sure we can surmount anything. So I ask this of you, dear listener, make small progress on a big problem today. You don't have to resolve the entire issue, just make a little bit of effort towards it. Taxes are due today, and if you were to throw 30 minutes of effort in every few days leading up to it, it would make tonight's last-minute scramble a whole lot less stressful. Progress isn't immediate, so take a baby step every day. It's funny that I say all of this when I haven't touched my guitar in about a month now and complain about not learning fast enough, but you didn't come here to listen to a hypocrite coach you on life. You came here for the hottest news in oil and gas, along with some incredibly revealing statistics, so let's dive in, shall we? First, WTI prices. We spent all of last week trading it no lower than $65 until Friday afternoon brought it to around $64. Prices climbed from that throughout the weekend, and the price this morning skyrocketed and has passed through $66. As of recording, that price sits at $66.20 and currently shows no signs of slowing, but I would not be surprised if prices again settled in the high $65 range by noon. That market volatility is hitting just a little bit different today. That being said, I really do feel like we are just a little ways out from hitting $70 per barrel oil, so let's hang tight through the summer. The biggest factors propping up prices right now would have to relate to the Colonial Pipeline for sure. Although the company restarted operations late last week, the sentiment of gas shortages is sure to push up, of course, gasoline prices and WTI prices, but I'm sure you've definitely seen that at the pump yourself. Again, not a fundamental reason, as there's plenty enough gas to supply, but panic buying is what creates a shortage at the end of that supply chain. What's the lesson then? I suppose it's always panic buy gas because everyone else is going to do it too. No, that lesson sucks and I don't like it at all. Perhaps a better lesson is don't store gasoline in plastic bags and totes in your car, especially if you're a smoker. You might think I'm joking, but Google Florida Man Hummer and you'll find the details of the fellow who lit his cigarette after filling the interior of his Hummer with open gasoline containers. Another factor that is producing positive pressure on pricing would relate to the escalating conflicts between Israel and Palestine. Now, the details of this conflict are far too muddled to break down in just an episode of Monday Madness, but know that Israel is close to Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and the Mediterranean Sea. If a full-scale war emerges between Israel and Palestine, it could very easily threaten local supply networks. This may not affect WTI greatly, but it could send other benchmarks even higher. A factor that is certainly not contributing to positive price pressure is India's rampant epidemic. If you Google COVID map and look at the world map, you will see a bubble centered around India extending all the way to Greece, South Africa, and Australia. It dwarfs any other bubble on the map as its scale is just massive compared to the rest of the world. Because of this, India is experiencing lockdowns, curfews, and the likes. It is estimated that when their economy returns to normal, full force, another 6 million barrels of daily oil consumption will be recognized. Many small things are going on, but WTI pricing is looking good. Next, of course, is the rig count, where we are up a total of 5 rigs on the week. The Permian does what the Permian is best at, and adds 2 rigs to its total. 
Buchanan Woodford and Williston followed close with an additional rig each, and everyone else saw no change. Well, everyone else except for the Haynesville who lost one, but we will get into contributing factors for that later. A pretty standard week, but I would like to highlight that we added eight oil rigs and lost three gas rigs as a nation. As for the types of wells being drilled, we saw five directional rigs go up, two horizontal, and actually lost two vertical. A vast majority of the total rig count remains in the horizontal category. Something else I'd like to mention is that, despite seeing two rigs in the Permian, Texas lost a rig as a state. That being said, Louisiana gained three rigs, even though the Haynesville was the only major basin to lose a rig. That is about all I have to say for rig count for this week, really standard stuff, and the U.S. is now up 114 rigs on the year. To close out our statistics, we will take a quick peek at inventories. Both the API and the EIA predicted draws in the neighborhood of two and a quarter to two and three quarter million barrels, respectively. The API released their report May 11th and discovered that they were wrong, but in the best way possible. They underestimated the size of the draw. Rather than 2.25 million, they reported a 2.5 million barrel draw. A day after that, the EIA released their report and were also wrong, but this time they overpredicted. Rather than a 2.8 million barrel draw, we saw just under half a million barrels. Still, a draw is a draw, so this isn't a bad week. Even if we averaged it out between the two, we would still be down about 1.5 million barrels, so a good week in my book. On the refined side of things, we saw a build in propane, which is about right for this time of year. Less is being consumed for heating, and only a little more is being used for grilling and other outdoor activities. So it is right where it should be, if not a little lower than the median of the five-year historic range. Distillates are doing the exact same thing as they track downward, but much closer to the median than propane. But what about gasoline? We had a shortage of gasoline on the East Coast, no? Believe it or not, we actually saw a teeny tiny build. Nothing super significant, but a movement upward nonetheless. Like I mentioned earlier, there is no gas shortage. The shortage is fabricated by panic buying and is quickly fueled by the media because of a distribution disruption. Let's say, hypothetically, we stopped producing and importing gasoline today and only had whatever was stored to work with, and also let's assume all pipelines are functioning properly. At current use rates, that gasoline would last about 27 days. More realistically, I would factor in panic buying and adjust that to no more than a week. But regardless, we somehow still saw a small build, but that is not to say that the numbers are delayed and we could see a significant draw in this week's report, so keep your eyes peeled for that. But that is the end of our statistics, and it is time to get into those stories I keep hinting at. First things first, Excel is the first of utility companies in the United States to announce a goal of carbon-free electricity. The Minnesota-based company is kicking off a pilot project in Colorado where it will be sourcing its gas from Crestone Peak Resources, a Denver-based operator. Crestone Peak itself has a well-decorated but recent history of being exceptionally ESG-conscious. They were the first U.S. onshore oil and gas producer to adopt the use of a biodegradable non-toxic drilling fluid, and they were also the first energy company in Colorado to adopt a continuous real-time air quality monitoring system for a majority of its Colorado-based production locations with Project Canary. Needless to say, Excel was excited to partner with them as they know where their gas is coming from and they have a good idea what it costs to produce it. The resulting energy will hopefully have minimal methane emissions in order to produce exceptionally clean energy with natural gas. Next, I mentioned big news from Louisiana, and it will continue on the themes of ESG. When you think of oil states, Texas, California, Colorado are usually some of the first to come to your mind. 
not Louisiana, despite it being fifth place for carbon production. Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards said that he plans to bring Louisiana into the U.S. Climate Alliance following an executive order from late 2020. In the upcoming years, his Climate Commission will be exploring the potential for electric cars, mass transit systems, solar power, and offshore wind turbines in the Gulf of Mexico. Monique Hardin, policy expert with the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice, says that she is hopeful that this will lead to a growth of clean energy jobs, especially in communities of color and low-income communities. Even before the governor announced his ambitious plans, oil and gas activity has been faltering in the state. Shell Oil closed a refinery on the Mississippi River, citing consumer demand for cleaner fuels as the reason for its closure, and in the 1980s, about 40% of the state's GDP was from oil and gas. Today, that is just under 20%. Even now, renewable companies are eyeing the state as a location for investments. There are already a few biofuel plants in the works near Baton Rouge. Even so, the state will still have its hurdles attempting to pass new legislation through a majority of Republicans, and it is still in its infancy of renewables as only 4% of energy production comes from the renewables. Imagine if Louisiana had the Gulf of Mexico chock full of wind turbines. Just how much copper would you think that requires? Well, think no more, because a report from Energy Monitor is highlighting just what goes into these turbines. Offshore wind turbines require 8 tons of copper for every megawatt of generation capacity. Just how much is a megawatt? Well, a single megawatt can support 330 homes for an hour, or a megawatt hour to every 330 homes. An average turbine of 3.6 megawatts capacity will contain somewhere in the neighborhood of 32 tons of copper. That's 64,000 pounds of processed materials to support 1,200 homes. Let's break it down further and see how much copper is acquired to replace the full natural gas power generation capacity of Louisiana. The EIA found in January of this year that Louisiana generated just over 5 million megawatt hours of electricity from natural gas-fired plants thanks to the state's highest per capita residential sector electricity consumption. 8 tons of copper to every megawatt hour results in 40 million tons of copper, or 80 billion pounds. Of course, this hypothetical is absolutely ridiculous because the entire state of Louisiana will never be fully switched to renewable energy sources, just too many issues with intermittency, but it highlights another environmental cost that can easily be scaled from one state all the way to the globe, because if it's not Louisiana consuming 80 billion pounds of copper, well, the rest of the world has a demand for some of this clean energy technology as well, not to mention the actual monetary cost associated with these things. Someone is bound to make bank off of this energy transition. But that is all I've got today. I don't think I ran a little too long, but if you still want more mind-enriching content, go to www.rarepetro.com to find more. If you disagree with anything I've said or even doubt my mathematical ability to calculate tonnage of copper, I'd love to hear from you directly. Please email podcast at rarepetro.com. This has been Tavis Killian with Rare Petro, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody. Take care, everybody.